0: okay everyone just a little brief introduction what are we doing tonight we are going to be studying a text called Pirkei which means literally chapters of the fathers that is a section of the Mishnah what is the Mishnah a Mishnah is basically a paragraph which contains a number of laws in it generally most of the Mishnahs um, are legal that means they contain halakha Laws, what is a halacha? It's basically a directive of how to act in a particular situation, particular time, particular place. Uh, In the words of another rabbi, um, you have a uh, case and you have the uh, directive. However, this section of the Mishnah is a little different. The Mishnah was put together, edited, written in 170 to 200 of the Common Era, about 1,800 years ago, by Judah the Prince. So Judah the Prince puts together the Mishnah, because what he wanted to do was, he, wanted, he did not want the oral traditions of the Jewish people to be lost. Jews were in, ex, in exile, the Roman Empire had oppressed us, they destroyed the power of the Sanhedrin, uh, the temple was in ruins, Jews were scattered around the world, there was a big danger. The danger was, the oral traditions that we received, all the way back from Moses, that Sinai would be lost so therefore, as an emergency decision, he decided he was going to write down what we call the oral law. And he wrote it down in the book called the Mishnah. He divided the Mishnah. Each Mishnah, as I said, is a paragraph with a few laws. Then they are an accumulation of Mishnahs goes into a chapter, and a bunch of chapters are in what's called a Masechta, a tractate. This is a tractate. Now each, um, he divided them up into six larger books. Shisha, Sudarim, you heard the term Shas? That's the whole Mishnah. Shishasada means six sections, six orders. The six orders are Zraim, which means agricultural laws of the land of Israel, Mo'ed, which means times, Sabbath, festivals, all the everything to do with the calendar. Mo'ed, that's Mo'ed. Nashim, that's to do with marriage and divorce and incest and adultery and relationships and stuff like that. Everything to do with the relationship of man and woman. Um, Nazikin, which means damages. Damages, that is to say, that deals with financial law, torts, damages, jurisprudence, how the courts run, testimony, etc. Then we have Kodshim, which is holy matters, that deals with things to do with the animal world, the sacrifices in the temple, the laws of Kashrut, kosher laws. And then finally you have Taharat, which means purity. That's family purity, life and death, burial, and so on and so forth. Okay, those are the six orders. So, for example, the tractate about Shabbat is where, where would you expect Shabbat to be? Moed. In which order? Moed, or, uh, the times. Uh, tractate Kiddushin about how to get married, where would that be? Nashim. Nashim. Where is Avot? Where, Pirkei Avot is basically deals not with law. Pirkei Avot is the only section of the Mishnah that does not deal with law. It deals with what we call Chassidut, which means piety, going beyond the law a little bit beyond the law, right? What it means, Pirkei Avot deals with character development, personality development, character traits, virtue, etc. In which one of the sections would you put, if you were the editor, where would you put Pirkei Avot? Neither. Nowhere. You'd have to put it somewhere. You want, you, want, you want some ethics there. Where would you put it? No no, No suggestions? No, so where would you, if you're editing the Mishnah, you're writing this legal text. There's one section you need to put in something about character development. You need to put in ethics. You need to have that. You can't just have law. If you only have law, society goes down the drain. So you've got to have ethics and morals as well. So you want to put in a section about ethics and morals. Where would you put it? Everywhere. I would put it at the beginning. I think that's, that's, a, that's a logical place to put it. At the beginning, right? But the problem is, Judah the prince did not put it at the beginning. Where did he put it? In the Zikin, in the middle of damages. In fact, where is it? It's right after Sanhedrin, which deals with the courts, and before Avodazara, which deals with the laws of idol worship. So right smack bang, in the middle of the section about damages, financial laws, the courts, etc., you've got this little tractate, Masechta all about ethics and morals. What's it got to do with it? Why is it there? Is the question clear? Okay. Any, any answers here? Anyone any, have any answers? So, well I'll, I'll tell you where it is. It's in the order of, tr- of damages, right? And it is placed right after Sanhedrin, which means that's where it deals with the court system, and before Avodazara, which deals with the laws of idolatry. So, can anyone think of why Judah the Prince would have put it there? The silence is quite loud here. No no thoughts on this? Okay. So, I'll you, huh? so it's before judgment and after... It's after judgment, after the judges, before idol worship. Yeah. And it's in the order of damages. So there's a few reasons. Right? There's a few reasons. Possible. All right? One of them is the following. In the days of the Talmud, and the same is true today, it's still true. In the yeshiva, when you are studying in a yeshiva, right, the main course of study in the days of the Talmud was Nezikim. Mostly, they'd spend most of their time studying the order of Nazikin. Why would they spend their time studying the order of nizikin? The answer is it deals with the normal interaction between one person and another. Most of our interactions, unfortunately, right, involve, I mean a lot of damage, but it involves interaction of one person and another society. So the laws that govern our economic, uh, our economic interaction with other people, that govern our, our clashes with other people, that govern the court system, society, that's what they used to study. That's what they spent most of their time studying. There's a few reasons for that. First of all, it's the most difficult. Right? Uh, it's the most difficult. So in that sense, it's a good thing to get your mind trained for the most difficult thing. You'll then find everything else easier. But there's another reason also. It's easier for another reason. Because as opposed to, let's say, an area like purity, where the concepts of ritual purity are very distant from our minds. They're not the type of things you can you can figure out. They're not the type of things you can use your logic to understand. And you know, very often they're the type of things you just need to know the information and and try to understand it. But it's much much harder to wrap your mind around these concepts of purity and impurity. It's much easier to involve your mind and your own logic in areas like financial law, damages, legal legal issues. Is this clear? Am I making myself making sense here? So. Because of that, that's what they spent most of their time doing. So now the rabbis wanted to ensure that if the curriculum is mainly being spent on the zikkin they wanted to make sure that everyone who went to Yeshiva would also study ethics and morals. So they stuck Avot the, uh, so stuck Avot right in the middle of Nezikin. So if you go to the regular Yeshiva in those days and you would be studying, you would have to run across the studying of ethics, and so therefore you'd get some level of ethical input. That's one possibility. Is this clear so far? Maimonides gives another reason. Maimonides says the following. He says it follows tractate Sanhedrin, which is the laws of the court system. The courts are our leaders. He says, look, everyone needs to be moral and ethical. But he says if a private individual is immoral, then he or she causes damage. But he says they don't cause as much damage as a leader who is immoral. If one of the leaders is immoral, the damage that he can cause is much, much worse than anything we can do. A private individual, if that private individual is immoral, that's not good. If he's got a lousy character, it's terrible. But it's much worse if that person is a leader is a judge, is a political leader, that's a disaster. So the Rambam Maimonides says, therefore, right after the tractate, the Masechta that deals with leadership, what do we have? The tractate that says, you know what qualification for leadership you need? Moral purity, Ethical, ethical purity. Uh, if we would have, you know, if you look at the elections, right, I mean, if it was, right, I mean, that, that's, that should really be what a leader is about. A leader should be about moral purity and, and personality and ethics. That's really what it should be. That's why, I that's why Ethics of the Fathers is right there after Sanhedrin to teach us that idea. It also teaches us something else very important. You look through the Torah, the Prophets and the Writings, uh, people tended to be praised, they're great leaders, Right, There were two who were praised for their wisdom. There was one, sorry, who was praised for his wisdom. Who was that? King Solomon. What were the other leaders praised for? I mean, there were hundreds of leaders of the Jews throughout the centuries in the Torah, Prophets and Writings. What were they praised for? Was anyone praised for their intellect? Does it describe Moses as a genius? No. Describes Moses, someone said it, as the most humble of all people. Does it describe David because he was brilliant? No. It describes him also as a humble person, right? It describes the, the praise for the leader is that person is not that they're a genius, but that person, it, you, have to have, you have to be an intellectual, they have to be bright, but the main qualification is they're a good person, they have a good character. So that's what Perkevot teaches us to put it in that place. There's another lesson as well, because it's right, in, it's right before the tractate, Masechet Avodah Zarah. Avodah is idol worship. That's one of the worst crimes in Jewish tradition is idol worship. Right? So ethics, ethics is right before idol worship. What does that teach you? So, the, so some of the commentaries say the following. that it's not, A person doesn't just become an idol worshipper overnight. What it starts with is little, little cracks in the wall. And the little cracks in the wall initially are immorality. A lack of ethics. A lack of behavior, a relationship with other people. And from that, it gets worse and worse till eventually the person's worshipping idols. Meaning that that we believe that idol worship is not something that happens overnight, but it happens from the fact that a person doesn't take sufficient care of improving their character and improving their morality. Eventually, it will end up with the worst possible crimes. It may start off very small, but it will get worse and worse. So those are a few reasons for the positioning of Pirkei Ethics of the Fathers in this particular place. Any question? If there's, if, if, Please, if you have questions, feel free to ask if you disagree. If you don't ask a question, I'm assuming you understood everything and you agree with what I said. So, so if, if neither of those are true, please feel free to ask. Okay. Why is it called what it's called? It is called Avot, which means Fathers. That's nothing to do with the content. The content of it is ethics. It should be called Musa, that means rebuke. It should be called... Midot, which means uh, uh, character traits. There's another tractate called Midot, which is measurements of the temple. But it should be called something like that. Why is it called Fathers? buk what's, what's that got to do with anything? You know, the tractate that deals with Shabbat, guess what it's called? Shabbat. Brilliant title, right? The tractate that deals with Passover is called Pesachim, Pesach. The tractate that deals with ethics is called Avot. What's... Nothing to do with it. So there's a few reasons for this. A few reasons for this. First of all, um, one possible reason is the following. If you look at the Torah, how many commandments in the Torah? We all know 613. How many in the book of Genesis, book of Bereshit, how many commandments appear in Genesis, Bereshit? Three. I mean, that's pathetic. The whole book, one-fifth of the Torah... And it's got, I don't know the calculation, three out of 613 commandments. And by the way, one of those commandments is repeated later on, so it's unnecessary in Genesis. So there's three commandments in the whole book of Genesis, 610 in the rest of the Torah. What's the book of Genesis for? The answer is, the book of Genesis is called, one of the names for Genesis, Bereshit, is Sefer Hayashar, which means the book of the upright. How to act in an upright, correct manner. What we learn from Genesis is actually something you need to know before mitzvot. Before mitzvot, you know what you have to be? You have to have what we call derech eretz, which means... Well, it's not common sense. Common sense is necessary for derech eretz, but I would describe derech eretz as it literally means how to walk in the world. means how to be a decent human being. How to interact with people and have a love for humanity. We learn that from the patriarchs and the matriarchs. We learn that Abraham, right, when he is told the city of Saddam is going to be destroyed, Saddam was an evil, corrupt, perverse, horrific place. Saddam makes Las Vegas look like Jerusalem, Lahavdil, right? So Saddam, and God, t- Abraham, no, there's no question Abraham hated what went on in Saddam. Of course, Abraham dis- was disgusted by it. And as God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Saddam, what's Abraham's reaction? All no. no, right. No, that's not his reaction. What's Abraham's reaction? Oh, God forbid. How could you do such a thing? What if, uh, he tried everything he could to save Saddam. Okay. And what happens later on, you know, he, he tells the uh, king of Sodom, he says, you take the property. I don't want the property. You keep the property, I'll keep the people, after he goes to war. Right? We find interaction. You know, Yitzhak is thrown out of, the, uh, of a place called Gaza right, by the Philistines. Right? And after they throw him out, they then come to him. Because they see their economy is going down the drain, they see their luck is going bad, right? Why? They figure probably because we threw out Yitzhak, Isaac. So they come to Yitzhak, and how long does it take for Yitzhak to be to, to forgive them? About two sentences. One sentence. Right. The patriarchs loved people. They liked people. They had a positive attitude towards humanity. And they were upright and they were honest and they were decent. So that is what we say. There is a there's a statement, Derech Eretz Kadma Lotora, which means Decency preceded the Torah. Before we got the commandments, you know what we were told? Be a decent human being. So therefore, the Avot Avot means our ancestors, our our patriarchs, our fathers. They are to us the teachers of what it means to be an upright, decent person. Once you've done that, then the Torah can speak to you but I can't really speak to someone. A person doesn't understand basic decency, and you start to talk to them about lofty concepts of the Torah, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Right? So therefore, you've got to start with Avot. So that's why it's called Avot. That's number one. Possibility number two, that what is said in this tractate is really the job, it's a parent, one of the prime jobs of a parent is not just to, give you, is not just to provide you with food, one of the prime jobs of a parent is to teach you how to be a decent human being. In fact, shma B'ni Musar Avicha, it says, Listen, my son, to the rebuke of your father, and don't abandon the Torah of your mother. So your parents, their main job really is to teach you how to be a decent person. So therefore, the rabbis of the Mishnah, that's what they're doing. They're acting as our parents. They're teaching us how to be decent. So that's why it's called Avot. There's a third possibility, which is called Avot, because each of the principles said here is a primary category from which you can derive many others. In other words, don't think that the principle which they're going to say in the Mishnah is just limited to that idea. But it's something which rather is like a father, but it's got children. It's got many children. That means it has got lots of ramifications and lots of extensions in many areas of life. So these are what we call avot of the Middot. That means the primary categories, the parents of, of character. But there are many things which come from that, which we can learn from that. Okay. So that's why it's called Pirkei Avot. The Talmud says in Bavakama, Rav says, a person who wants to be pious... It gives three opinions. It says, If a person wants to be pious, what does it mean, Chasid. Chasid means, from the word chesed, means kindness. That means a person who wants to... Kindness is something, it's different from tzedakah. What's tzedakah? It's charity. You have to give, right? Like taxes, you have to give taxes. Kindness is something which is going beyond. Going beyond what you have to do so the, it says that the ethics of the fathers is what we call chassidut because it's going beyond the letter of the law you know if a person it's possible for a person to be totally legal and a complete evil corrupt person is that possible? I can name some names of people like that I'll tell you afterwards right? but there is a possi- is it, it's possible for a person not to do one thing which is actually illegal and that person can still be a complete lowlife complete animal Right, Nachmanides talks about this, he calls it which means a corrupt individual, but he's doing it but he's kosher about it now what that means is such a person is not what the Torah is about such a person, it's not enough we would say it's not enough to be legal if you go to your lawyer and you say listen, um, is it ok to do this? and he says, well, it's legal just, right? does that mean it's the right thing to do? not necessarily it means you won't be arrested if you do it. It doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So in other words, it's not enough just to have laws. So the Torah law says, keep kosher. So you have to have kosher food. A person could have kosher food and still be a complete glutton. Right? They, could be, they could sit there eating like Jabba the Hut, Hutt, right? stuffing their face, right? and it's all kosher food. Right? That's not what it's about. So, so, therefore, this section goes above and beyond. Now, it's interesting. The Talmud says three different opinions as what you should do if you want to be a Hasid. That means you want to be pious. One opinion it says is, لْكَيَمْ مِلَيْ Fulfill the words of tractate of damages, which means be scrupulous about not hurting other people. Be very careful about not stealing. Be very careful about all the matters of dealing with other people. That's where you have to really be careful. The other one says, the matters of ethics of the fathers, which deals primarily with your own personality development. And some say, which means the matters of blessings and prayer. You think about it, there are three categories mentioned here. Nezikin is damages, avot, Pirkei Avot is ethics, character. And the third is brachot, prayers. Right? What are those three categories? Can anyone think of what those three categories are? I'll give you a clue. They're three types of relationships. What are the three types of relationships possible in this world? You have three. We're, we're created to develop relationships in three areas. What are the three areas that we can have relationships in or with? Yeah. With your parents, um, with your spouse, and with your children. Make it a little broader, because parents and spouse and children are all part, I would say, of one category. What category is that? A fellow human being. Okay? So that's one category. Any other categories? With God. You have to develop a relationship with God. And any other categories? With yourself. Okay? So really there's three categories which you have to develop your relationship. With other people, with God, and with yourself. If you actually look at the end of the Mishnah, we'll, we'll talk about a little. Actually, the next Mishnah, Mishnah number two in your outlines, it says the world stands on three things. Right? It says Torah, study of Torah, avodah, which means praying to God, gemilut chasadim, which means kindness to others. If you think about it, those three are the three categories I just mentioned. The study of Torah is a commandment between you and yourself to develop your own soul and your own sanctity. Right, Avodah means prayer to God, praying. That's development of your relationship with God. Gemilut chasadim means kindness to others, development of your relationship with other people. So really, uh, the three categories which the rabbis state, which is Nezikin and Avot and Brachot, which is damages, Pirkei Avot and blessings, are the, all of those three categories. So, um, that is, but, so what we say here is that Pirkei Avot primarily is about developing, um, developing ourselves and our own sanctity and our own personality and character, and obviously that has uh, to develop our relationship with other people and with God. Okay, let's have a look at the start of the Mishnah. The Mishnah starts with the following. It says, Moshe Kibel Torah Sinai Moses received the Torah from Sinai. Umasar and gave it over to Joshua. Joshua gave it to the elders. The elders to the prophets. And the prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. So we have here a chain of historical transmission of the Torah from Sinai down to the men of the great assembly. The men of the great assembly was a court of rabbis, 120 rabbis, who lived at the beginning of the Second Temple era. So That means approximately 2,500 years ago. About 2,500 years ago was the beginning of the Second Temple era, and that's what we. So, so we take it from Moses all the way down to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, elders to the prophets, prophets to the Great Assembly. Let me ask you a simple question here: Why are we starting this tractate with the chain of transmission? If you wanted to put the chain of transmission of the Torah somewhere in the oral law, where would you put it? At the beginning. It would make much more sense to put this at the beginning of the whole Mishnah. Why do you specifically put it here? Why in Pirkei Avot do we need a Mishnah that tells us where the Torah came from? That it came from Sinai to Moses, Moses to Joshua, transmitted all the way down. Why would you put it here? So there are a few possible reasons for that. Any other tractate, Every other tractate in the uh, Mishnah deals with what? What's the difference between this tractate and every other tractate? Aside from the fact that every other tractate, Masechet, deals with halacha, law, that's one distinction, but there's another distinction as well. What's the other distinction between this tractate and every other one? Every other one, sorry? This have Gemara. This no, well, there are other tractates that don't have Gemara as well. There are, there are quite a few others that don't. So, But something intrinsic about it, something which you can say confidently, this tractate is totally different from all the others. One major difference between this tractate and all the others, aside from the ethical versus halacha. Yeah? No disagreements here? No disagreements? There are disagreements. There's a couple of disagreements here. And there's another tractate, Adiyot, which also has no disagreements. So that we can't say. All right? Because that... We see that it's not, that's not correct. So what will be a distinction? I'll tell you the distinction. It works like this. Every other tractate deals with a specific mitzvah or specific verses in the Torah. For example, the tractate of Shabbat deals with the mitzvah of Shabbat. And there's verses in the Torah. The tractate of Bavakamah which is damages, deals with verses in the Torah, in Mishpatim, in Exodus 22, which talks about different damages that are caused. It talks about specific verses in the Torah, or a specific mitzvah. What specific mitzvah or verse in the Torah is this tractate dealing with? There isn't. There's no... Spe- you, can't, you know, every other tractate, you can look at a specific part of the Torah, the five books of the Chumash, and say, ah, it's explaining this. Or you can look at a specific mitzvah and you can say, aha, it's explaining this mitzvah. This is the only tractate in the entire Talmud, right? in the whole Mishnah, where you can look at it and say, I don't know, which specific which mitzvah is it explaining? Which verse in the Torah." It's not. So therefore here especially, what we have to start with is a statement of authority of this Mishnah. To say, it is true. It's not dealing with a specific mitzvah and it's not not dealing with a specific section of the Torah. However, it's just as much Torah as everything else because it's part of the oral tradition that goes all the way back to Moses at Sinai. Is this answer clear? Yeah? Clear? Yes? Is there a mitzvah? Very interesting question. The question was, is there a mitzvah to work on your character? There isn't. There isn't. Interestingly enough, Reb Chaim Vital, who's a very great Kabbalist, student of the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, Reb Chaim Vital points this out in the beginning introduction to one of his books called Eitz Chaim, Tree of Life. And he asks why that's so. So he asks the same question you've got, right? Reb Chaim Vital says, why is it so? He says, you know why? We already answered this. If you were listening, you might have an answer to this question. Why is there no specific mitzvah to work on your on your?" Character in the Torah. Why is it not one of the 613 mitzvot? Yeah. In, trinity, we? in other words, what, what we said is, well, well, not necessarily you're born with it, but you're obligated to do that before mitzvot. It precedes the mitzvot. If you haven't worked on yourself, it's going to be very hard for you to actually fulfill the mitzvot. Right. So it's assumed that you've done that before you get to the mitzvot. That's, one, that's a possibility right so anyway so one reason that Pirkei Avot starts with the chain of Torah transmission is because it doesn't apply to a specific commandment it doesn't apply to a specific parasha and therefore you might be wondering so where does it all come from so we tell you you know what it comes from Moses at Sinai as well we'll talk about that a little more second possibility yeah this only talks about you uh, uh, according to yourself right this first Mishnah. Yeah, you talk about three categories oh, oh! So you're right. It, it, it talks about the other categories as well, but primarily, it, it, it deals with the development of the self. self like, yeah. So now we have another another possibility. Did other cultures produce books of how to be a decent person? Yeah. Yes. Many other cultures. The Greeks had books about this, right? Quite a few different cultures have books. Uh, of, of advice and ethics of how to be a decent person. So what we want to do here is distinguish uh, between distinguish between um, the uh, the fact that these were create those were created by what people figured out. This is not created by what people figured out. This actually comes from a tradition going all the way back to Sinai. Okay. Now what I'd like you to do is look at the text of this Mishnah. Just the first couple of phrases. And I want you to figure out what are the problems here. There are numerous problems in this text. Many, many problems. Yeah. I'm sorry. There are many problems in the text. Let's read it again. Moshe Kibel Torah Masinai. Moses received the Torah from Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. And Joshua to the elders, the elders of the men of the great assembly. If you just look at that first phrase, first few phrases there should be numerous questions which are hitting you right now which are bothering you intensely which you will not be able to sleep or eat until you find the answer to them right what are the questions that should be really disturbing you now when you read this i mean you read this and you should be saying oh my gosh this makes no sense whatsoever what well, so question number 1 question number 1 is what do you mean to joshua Moses taught it to the whole, Jew, to whole Jewish people. We learnt in this week's, part, this week's Torah reading, Moses transmitted the Torah to everyone, it's not just Joshua. Joshua is the only person Moses taught Torah to. Give me a break. Right? Lots more people. So that's question number one. Any other questions? If you continue passing it down the way it is then, isn't it ine- inevitable for the words to change around and for it not to be legit? That's a good question, but it's not a question on the Mishnah. Now, that's a general, it's an excellent question. Maybe we'll, if we have time, we'll deal with that. But, but, yeah, that's a good question. But it's not a question per se on what the... You, know, you look at the Mishnah, right? You've got, a, you've got some textual questions, linguistic problems, logical problems, right? So, in other words, the first question we had is, it, it's not, it doesn't seem accurate. Because Moses, we know, gave it to the whole Jewish people, not just to Joshua. Any other questions? Yeah? That's right. The first statement is written... It doesn't make sense. It says Moses received the Torah from Sinai. Now, that either it should be written, Moses received the Torah at Sinai, or Moses received the Torah from God. But to say he received it from Sinai, you, you understand the problem here? I mean, Sinai is a geographical location. He didn't get the Torah from Sinai, he got the Torah at Sinai. Or, he got the Torah from God at Sinai, but... From Sinai, uh, you know what I mean? It doesn't, the the grammar doesn't, is the question clear to everyone? Yeah, it's a good question. Okay. Any other problems? Other problems? Consistency. There doesn't seem to be consistency here. It says Moses received the Torah from Sinai. What What would you say the next sentence should be? Yeshua received it from Moses. Instead it says Moses received the Torah from Sinai and he transmitted it to Joshua, So, it's not consistent. Right? The first phrase is passive. Moses receives. The second phrase, it's Moses transmits. In other words, who is the, who is the subject of the first phrase? Right? It, it's really, it's, I, I guess, uh, grammatically, Moses is the recipient of the Torah. Whereas in the next phrase, it doesn't describe Joshua as the recipient. It describes Moses as the giver. Right, So those are a couple of the questions that we have. Those are all excellent questions. Let's try to let's try to figure out uh, an answer to these questions. Um, okay. First of all, would it be appropriate to say the following? If it, if it would have said Moses received the Torah from God, and Joshua received it from Moses, would there be anything wrong with that? Yes. Moses receives it from God. Joshua received it from Moses. The prophets, the, the elders received it from Joshua, and so on and so forth. Would there be any problem with that? Would you find that okay? You would find it okay? could be, right? Any problem? That, um, by stating that, you are stating that the transmission is actually Moses' interpretation and not the direct, uh, what it was directly. because if you're receiving something from a person, you're receiving that. objective view from the original. It could be like, um, but but would, wouldn't that be a problem even the way it's phrased now? Would that be only a problem the way if I would say it that way? or It's, it's another issue, but you're right. right? But, but would, why would that be more of a problem if I'd say Moses received it from God, Joshua received it from Moses? I mean, if you think about it, yeah? You make an analogy that uh, Moses is God in the thing of all of that You're right. You see, there's a bit of a problem here. Whenever we talk about God, we're always going to run into a problem. The problem we're always going to run into is that God cannot be compared to anything or anyone. right? So when we call God king, we don't think of King Louis or King Henry. Right? It's, it's, God forbid, right? We don't think of that. We understand that it means something beyond that. So we always are very careful in our studies and very careful in our expression to always make a distinction. Make a distinction. Say, when we, for instance, in Hebrew there's a word kiviyachol. What does Kiviyachol mean? Anyone know any Hebrew? Kiviyachol, as if possible. When you talk about God doing something, very often we'll say Kiviyachol, as if it would be possible to say it about God. It was really, it's not possible. So we don't want to create an equivalent between God transmitting to Moses and Moses transmitting to Joshua. Because what we're saying is relationship of Moses to Joshua, relationship of God to Moses, same, right? Six inches, from there to there, six inches from there to there, six inches from there to there, so on and so forth. That we don't want to say because the distance between Moses and God is a little bigger than the distance between Moses and Joshua, right? Is it making myself clear? Is yeah, it's fine. Right. So therefore, we want to only hint at God. We don't want to actually put him in the sentence because if we put him in the sentence, we are creating an analogy between the relationship of God and Moses and the relationship of Moses and Joshua and all the rest of them, which is not true. Because the distance between God and Moses is huge, infinite. Whereas the distance between Moses and Joshua, it may be great, but it's not infinite, that's for sure. So that may be one possibility. So question. So how come in the right, it said, and Hashem said it to Moshe's mouth, and then Moshe said it to Israel? Isn't that also kind of the same thing? It doesn't say that. There's no sentence that actually puts it in, that terms, right, in those terms. It says, though, it does say, God spoke to Moses, and he told Moses, you tell it to the children of Israel. So it says, God spoke to Moses, and he said to Moses, said to Moses you tell it to the children of Israel. But you don't have a sentence where, where you just creating this chain of that sort. So that's that's what we that's what we're worried about here. That also may be why it says Sinai from Sinai." Because you see Moses at Mount Sinai, we, this week's Torah portion talks about it. We have this revelation of God at Mount Sinai. God reveals the Torah and gives it to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai doesn't just mean it's it not just a geographical location. When we talk about Sinai, what we really mean is the revelation of Sinai. Right? For instance, the, the mitzvah in the Torah, it says, to remember Mahmud Har Sinai standing at Mount Sinai. That doesn't mean, you know, everyone take pictures, we're all standing at Mount Sinai, group photo, right? So all the whole group stands in front of Sinai, we like that, and that's the mitzvah, to remember that we're at Sinai. Right? You know, or carve your name, you know, what uh, you know, Gidom was here or something like that. So the idea of remembering Sinai is not remembering a geographical location, but it's remembering the fact that at Mount Sinai there was a mass revelation. God spoke to the entire Jewish people. He didn't speak to one individual. He spoke to the entire Jewish people. So really when it says Moses received the Torah at Sinai, it's reminding us that it wasn't Moses by himself. He received the Torah, but it was witnessed by who? The whole Jewish people. Look at this week's Torah portion. God tells Moses, listen, when you come up to the mountain, and, and they'll, you'll walk into the clouds, and I'll speak to you. He says, the Jews will hear when I speak to you. Why? So they'll believe in you forever. Because God wanted the Jews also to know that when he spoke to Moses, it was not that we trust Moses. You go any religion, for instance, Islam. The Muslims believe that Muhammad has the word of God. But did anyone witness God speak to Muhammad? Of course not. It happened where? It happened in private. It happened on a mountaintop in private. No one witnessed it. Which means, if you trust Muhammad, fine. If you don't trust him, not good. Right? But basically, it's a matter of trusting Muhammad and taking him for his word. The same is true in Christianity. Okay? No one witnessed God speaking to uh, Jesus or any of these other people. So therefore, you don't know, have to trust him. The same is true in virtually any religion, like the Mormons, Joseph Smith, etc. In Judaism, it's different. Why is it different in Judaism? Because in Judaism, all of the Jews had prophecy. Every single Jew at Mount Sinai became a prophet. And which means we all heard God speaking to Moses. It wasn't that we trusted Moses. It's that we saw with our own eyes and heard with our ears God speaking to him. We heard God say, Moses, I'm going to tell you this and this and this. Which means, when we say, Moshe Kibel Torah Messinai, what we are trying to mention, what Judah the Prince is trying to mention here in the Mishnah is, the experience of Mount Sinai, the revelation of Sinai, the fact that it was all the Jews there. Is this clear so far? We all, yeah? okay. Now, why is there a difference between the verbs? Moshe kibel Torah Messinai. Oh, by the way, one more point which we could explain Messinai might mean chronological meaning when does Torah start? when does Torah I know it sounds like a stupid question when does Torah start? for example did Mo, Abraham did Briss Miller he did circumcision correct? Uh, why are we obligated to do circumcision? because Abraham did it? why are we obligated to do it? Because God, when did God say to do it? At Mount Sinai. My obligation to do mitzvot does not start with the patriarchs. I don't do anything because of tradition. I was speaking at a conservative synagogue in Verona. uh, Last night? Was it last night? What night was last night? Wednesday. No, Tuesday night. Tuesday night I was speaking at a conservative synagogue in Verona. in in New Jersey. So um, uh, one of the congregants was saying that he was taught in his conservative school that they don't call God king they don't call God king. Why? Because king is a political reality that's not relevant to us today. And therefore, they don't refer to God as king. It's, but yeah, maybe they refer to the sea. I, that's right. That could be a possibility. I, I didn't see that in the sitter, But they don't refer to God as king. And, and uh, the rabbi said that's correct. He says, because, because we don't feel that, that... First of all, we believe that all men are created equal. And therefore, the idea of king is something which is not something that we, that we like. Right, not something that we're comfortable with, right? Of course, I didn't point out God is not a people, but well, okay, whatever. Right? He said we're not. So, I, so I said, but in the conservative prayer book, I asked the rabbi, in your conservative prayer book, it calls God King about four hundred times. In their prayers, it says Melech Haolam, King of the Universe. So I said, why do you have, if you don't believe that God is King, you don't think of Him that way, why in your prayer book do you have Melech? Right? It's a good question. I thought it was a good question. So the rabbi said, I said, why? He says, because it's traditional. Traditional. We don't want to just throw out the tradition. So I said to him, I said, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm not traditional. I'm not. Conservatives are traditional. I'm not traditional. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't do anything because it's a tradition. I do it because it's true. If I did not think it was true, I wouldn't do it. Right, if I if, if I felt that when it says Melech, it's not true, I would rip that out. I would wipe. I would wipe it out of the I wouldn't say it. I don't believe in saying something which is not true. Right, I don't do it just because of tradition. If my ancestors were pirates, I wouldn't go around pillaging people because it's a tradition in the Becher family. <laughs> <coughs> my tradition, right? You know, if my I mean, my family. You know, my family played cricket. So, you know, if I don't like, I happen to like cricket, but if I didn't like cricket, I wouldn't play cricket just because my family played cricket. That's meaningless. Right? I said to him, the fact that it's tradition, if you don't believe it's true, don't do it. Right? So I said, Orthodox Jews don't believe in tradition. We believe in truth. It's just that we believe our tradition is true. Right? But if you believe in tradition, but you don't think it's true, that makes no sense to me. So you see, when we say, so Abraham did circumcision. He did circumcision. So I don't do it because Abraham did it. That's not why I circumcised my children. Nothing to do with that. I did it because God said to do it. In the, uh, at where? At Mount Sinai. When Jacob and the sons of Jacob, did stop, when he was touched on the sciatic nerve by the angel, you know the story, Jacob struggles, wrestles with the angel, right? the, the first UFC, right? they fight all night, etc. So the, the angel touches him. The angel touches him on the sciatic nerve and hurts his sciatic nerve very painful, so it says in the Torah, since then we don't eat Gid Hanashe, you know what the Gid Hanashe is? The sciatic nerve of an animal, Jews do not eat the sciatic nerve of an animal since that time, now the truth is the reason I refrain from eating the sciatic nerve of an animal is not because of Jacob, but it's because God said in the Torah not to so when it says Moshe Kibel Torah where does the obligation of Torah start from? Chronologically it starts from Sinai so M-Sinai might not mean a location. It might mean a, a time. Moshe Torah, M-Sinai. Moses is the Torah from Sinai onwards. And the only reason I have a connection to things before Sinai is because the Torah tells me I have that connection. So that's the idea. So there's a few possibilities of Sinai. There's one other possibility. M-Sinai, when you say from Sinai, in Hebrew, it's actually also true in English, but it, it, that, that from Sinai might also mean a cause. Meaning, Moses received the Torah as a result of Sinai. What does that mean as a result of Sinai? Because the word Sinai, which is the Mount Sinai, what words are are, are related to in Hebrew? Why is it called Sinai? So there's actually, uh, we know that that was the mountain where Moses first spoke to God, right? God first spoke to Moses. What happened? Moses is in a plate, right? He's shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law. And he comes and he sees, what does he see? What's the first thing Moses saw? First time God spoke to Moses, what did Moses see? A burning bush. What's the burning bush? What's the bush in Hebrew? Snare. Snare. Samach nun he. Right? And where did he see the snare? On this mountain. Mount Sinai is the mountain of the burning bush. It's the mountain of the bush. It's, the, it's where first, God first appeared to Moses. And the snare, the burning bush, is a symbol of Humility. It's a symbol of lowliness. A tree is a symbol of arrogance, height. But the bush is a symbol of humility. So Moses was the one who received the Torah. Why? Because Moses was the most humble of all people. And it's on Sinai, not by coincidence, because it's the mountain of the bush. And it so happens there's a famous Midrash that tells us that it's the lowest. it was the lowest mountain in the range it was not chosen because of its height Everest is higher Mount Hawaii is higher K2 is higher right? Mount Fuji is higher right? Mount Washington is higher etc. Right? so every Jew would have in the car I climb Mount Sinai it's not true right? it's not because of the height it was because of the lowest so it's a matter of humility now it's interesting the Kabbalists point out this is also why it says Moshe the difference is the following what's the difference between Moses received and he gave it over to Yeshua so it's interesting, the Talmud says, which means handing over, requires what? Two participants. Right? The one who hands and the one who accepts. Misirah, as the Talmud says, is miyad liyad, that means from hand to hand. But kibel, le kabel, means to receive, right? could be something which is totally passive. For example, a, a, a cup. Right? You could say in Hebrew, the cup received the wine. That's not the cup didn't put out its hand, so give me some wine, right? The cup is just like a, a passive recipient, correct? So it works like this. Moses, um, the, the, this is the Zohar says this. When it says in the Torah, Moses, sometimes names are repeated. You ever notice this? Names are repeated in the Torah. God calls to Moses, he says, Moshe, Moshe. God calls to Avraham and he says, Avraham, Avraham, Yeshua, Yeshua, etc. Names are repeated. Now, it's very interesting, why are the names repeated? What's the repetition of the name mean? It's like when I call my kid, Rafi, 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 could you come, right? I mean, I I repeat the name 50 times, right? So that's not why God, it's not like God is saying, Abraham, Abraham, hello, right? That's not what it is, right? When the Torah says the word Abraham twice, it's not because, right, the kids are not listening. You know what I mean? Right? Why is it? It's amazing. You know, my kids play in the attic. Right. So I call them down sometimes. We're at the Shabbat table, they run up to the attic, right, they're playing, and I say, Can you guys come down? Can't hear me. Right? Then it say dessert. <laughs> right? Unbelievable, right? They from the attic they hear me say whisper dessert. They come down straight away. It's unbelievable. Right? So um, why is it repeated? So the Zahar says because every person is living in two dimensions. We are living in this world. You see us in this world, but our soul, the highest level of the soul, is actually living in a spiritual world. It's living in Olam Haba. So, so, so we're connected to the world to come. We're living in two worlds simultaneously. The lowest level of the soul is here in the body in this world. The highest level of the soul is in a different dimension, spiritual dimension. So when God says, Abraham, Abraham, he's referring to the highest level of the soul, and the lowest level. Okay? Is this clear? Now, it's interesting. The Zohar says the following. When the, you know, the Torah has tunes, we sing the Torah. We don't read it, we sing it. So when it says Avraham, Avraham, or Yehoshua, Yehoshua, right, there's a slight pause in between the first name Moses and the second name, uh, in the first name Avraham and the second Avraham. So when the person reads the Torah, when he says it, he'll say Avraham, slight pause, slight pause, Avraham. Yeshua, sure, Yeshua. Sure. slight pause in between. When it's Moshe, Moshe, it says, Lopasik Tame begve. there's no pause whatsoever in between the two names. So when you read, you have to listen carefully to hear this, right? Words, you can't be talking about the financial pages of the New York Times during davening if you want to hear. right? It's So when the, when the person reads it, you can hear a subtle pause, like a little break between Avraham, Avraham, but when it says Moshe, Moshe, Moses, Moses, no break whatsoever. What do you think that means? Given what I told you from the Zahar, what do you think that means? It was in one body soul at the same time. Well, it means, obviously, yes, you're right, there's a close connection. If there's no break in the tune between Moshe, Moshe, you know what that means? The lowest level of the soul and the highest level of the soul completely and totally connected. There is nothing that gets between the two levels. Why? But when it says, Avraham, Avraham, and there's a slight pause in between, what does that mean? <laughs> that there is some level of, of disconnect. So it's interesting, and the Zohar says the following, because when Avraham described himself, you know how he described himself? He said, Anochi afar ve'efer. I am dust and ashes. When Moses described himself, he said, Nachnu ma, I'm nothing. Dust and ashes are? Something. something. So, so, granted the level of ego that there was existed in Abraham is something which we, I wish we could all obtain, right? You know, if we all got that, I mean, it'd be unbelievable. If my name was in the Torah, it would say Mordechai, 3,000 words later, Mordechai. So with Abraham, it's type of like, there's a slight pause which you have to be an expert to pick up. It's not much, but it's there. Moses, no ego, the most humble of all people. So there's no pause between Moshe, Moshe. So therefore, when it comes to Moshe, it says Kibel Torah, because Kibel means that you can just pour it into him. And he absorbs it, and he accepts it, because he's an open, a Kli, meaning a utensil that you can pour into. Whereas when it comes to every other generation afterwards, right, it's always what? There's a, there's a little bit of the other person's ego is involved in the transition. Someone, else, someone pointed this out, that there's some level at which the person is not totally objective. Right? When I tell you something, right? when I communicate with you, you communicate with me, each of us is going to be putting a little bit of ourselves into what you... I'm going to be putting a little bit of myself into what you said, and you're going to be putting a little bit of yourself into what I said. So that means there's a little bit, which is okay, that's normal. And God knows that we're humans. He knows we're going to do that. So therefore, that's fine. That's part of the process. With one exception. You know what the one exception was? Moses. He was the exception. There was nothing of Moses in the Torah. The Torah came to him and there's no Moses in the Torah. There's a little bit of Joshua in what Moses transmitted. There's a little bit of the Neveim in what was transmitted. A little bit of Cainim. A little bit so. Anyway, there's a song like that, whatever. Right, but, um, but the a little bit of each. But there's not a little bit of Moses in what he receives. It's purely, and where do you get, and so to speak, what does that mean? That's from the attribute of Sinai, meaning from his incredible humility. Moshe Kibel Torah. Is this, is this clear? So Just a little bit of how the Kabbalists understand that first phrase. Someone had a question. I thought I saw a hand, or was that a twitch? Yeah. Um, what's the difference between humility and faith? Well, um... Humility probably requires faith. Faith is belief in something which you cannot absolutely uh, bring evidence. Right? It may be reasonable, but you cannot absolutely prove. I mean, there's most things you cannot absolutely prove. Faith, right? um, humility is a comparison of yourself to something greater and recognizing that you are dependent, recognizing that you are, you are on a lower level. So, for example, mo- humility doesn't mean that Moses didn't, f- didn't know his own abilities. He knew he was brilliant. He knew he was, he knew he was the, 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 probably the greatest scholar at the time. He was the greatest scholar at the time. However, who was Moses comparing himself to continuously? Gosh. That's right. Because he had faith in God to such a high degree, he was continuously aware of the presence of God. So he's not comparing himself to the Jews. He's comparing himself to God. So, it, so it I, I used to teach at a place called Orosameach in Israel. So the guys I used to teach there basically knew nothing. Guys who generally came to the yeshiva, they didn't know much. So, which means, I'm teaching these people who know almost nothing every single day. Right? I could get the impression that I knew a lot. Right? I could feel that. Like, guys don't even know Hebrew. Enough, right? So every once a week, we'd go, I'd go to a class of my teacher, Reb Moshe Shapira, who gave a class to the staff at this place, or Orosameach. So I walk into the Shear. I begin to compare myself to Moshe Shapiro, I'm back to kindergarten. Right? The illusions of greatness that I had the rest of the week disappear Monday at 3.15. Because <laughs> I walk into the class and he says, anyone who can read Hebrew should know that this is an obvious idea. And I'm saying... It's obvious. I don't even understand it, right? right. I mean, it's like you know, and it's like you know, I ask him a question, he rips me to shreds. It's a, it's it's very good for you, right? So Moses was on a level where he's always comparing himself to, I mean, and compared to God, he's nothing. So he says, "Nachnu Okay, that's that's humility. But humility is not saying that I'm not worth anything. It's not saying that I cannot do anything. It's saying, but whatever I can do, whatever I am worth, ultimately I, I owe that to God. So that's how he understands it. So that's what the Kabbalists say about Moshe Kibel Torah, Messinai. Now, someone asked the question, what do you mean one person? He gave it to all the Jews. So the answer here is, what we are talking about here is the oral law. It is true that Moses taught the Torah, oral and written, to all the Jews. That's true. But there's always got to be one person in the generation who is... Responsible for the transmission process. So when it talks about Joshua, it means he is the guy who's responsible for the accurate transmission and teaching of the Torah. Right? So, so yes, he taught it to everyone. But who's who's? Where does the buck stop? As the Americans say, where does the buck stop? The buck stops at Joshua. Joshua transferred to the elders. The elders would then became the people responsible for transmission. To the Torah. There's always got to be people responsible for that. Okay, that's the idea. That's how we understand that. Now, so Moshe Kibbal Torah and he gave it to Yeshua, Yeshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. So it, is, it doesn't end here, by the way. If you look through the rest of the chapter one, uh, it goes through each person received from the other person. So-and-so received from so-and-so, and it gives you a chain of transmission all the way down to the time of Judah the Prince, who actually wrote the Mishnah. In fact, a friend of mine, he heard something from a teacher of his and decided, I wonder where that teacher got it from. And he decided to start investigating it. So he found that his teacher, Revolbi heard what he got from Reb Simcha Wasserman. Reb Simcha Wasserman heard that from his teacher, his father, Reb Al-Khanan Vaseman Wasserman. Vaseman heard it from a rabbi at the beginning of the 20th century known as the Chafetz Chaim. You've heard of the Chafetz Chaim? So, where did the Chafetz Chaim hear it from? The Chafetz Chaim heard it from Rav Meir, heard it from Rav Chaim Oizer Grzynski, who was the rabbi of Vilna. Where did he hear it from? He heard it from a rabbi who was a student of the student of the Gaon of Vilna, 1700s. Where did the Gaon of Vilna get it from? He got it from his teacher, right, in 1650. Right, He got it from a teacher, someone by the name of the Maharal, at the early 1600s. Where did the Maharal get that from? He got it from his teachers in Prague in the early 1500s. And he traced it back. And he found that it was actually the teachers in the 1500s, they received it from teachers who had come from Frankfurt to Prague in 1400s. And they got it from someone, and he kept tracing it back, and he found eventually that the tradition went back to actually someone by the name of Rashi in 1040 in, in France. I asked a kid at school, what did you learn today? He said, we learned about Rashi. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. The Rebbe said, our teacher said that Rashi lived during recess. I said, what are you kidding? He said, yeah. I said, what did the Rebbe say? He said, Rashi lived from 1040 to 1105. So... <laughs> so <laughs> so Rashi, Rashi, the great commentator in 1040, where did he receive it from? He received it from a teacher of his who actually got it from one of the Gaonim. Now, the Gaonim were the leaders of the academies in Babylon. So he got it from a Gaon who lived in approximately 900s and the the people in the Gaonim were the leaders of the yeshivas in Babylon. Now, the yeshivas in Babylon in 900 existed, were founded by the people who wrote the Talmud, which means the tradition goes back through the heads of the academies in Babylon to the teachers of the Talmud. The teachers of the Talmud heard it three generations earlier from the last people who were the teachers of the Mishnah that we're learning now. And in the Mishnah, you can trace it back all the way through through ethics of the fathers, right? All the way back to Hillel and Shammai and Shmaya and Aftalion and Antigonus. And Antigonus received from Shimonat Tzadik, who was the last of the men of the Great Assembly, who was the beginning of the Second Temple era. And the men of the Great Assembly received it from the last prophets. The last prophets lived at the time of the men of the Great Assembly. Ezra and Nehemiah, etc. And Ezra and Nehemiah, of course, were in a direct line from Daniel, and Daniel, and Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and keep going back until you get to Moses. So the thing that he heard from his teacher... On investigation, he found a chain that goes all the way back to Moses at Sinai. And that is what we are saying here in this particular Mishnah. Moses received the Torah at Sinai, gave it to Joshua, and so on and so forth, all the way down to, to present times. And they said, and let me quickly finish, because I, I feel guilty not even finishing the Mishnah, even though I mean, it was a little ambitious to even think that we'd finish the whole page that you go, but okay, whatever. So, so the, what did they say? Three things. They said three things. Now, clearly, Clearly, that statement is not correct. that statement makes sense? Do you think 120 rabbis only said three things? Give me a break! Do you know any Jew who's only said three things? 120 rabbis, they said three things. So, commentaries point out that the, in Ethics of the Fathers, that everything is selected stuff. Certain things are said here, uh, because that was what the person, his life, said that. In other words, sometimes things were selected because that person, you looked at that person, his life was a statement of that verse. For example, why is Rabbi Israel Meir Kagan, why is he called the Chafetz Chaim? Because his life was a verse in, in Psalms. You know what verse in Psalms was? Mi'a ish Chaim? Who is the man who loves life? Netzor guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking iniquity. So if you would look at that man and his life, you know what verse would come to mind? That pasuk. Certain people you'd look at, and they would be a living verse of the Torah living verse of the Torah so therefore sometimes things are selected here because that was the person represented sometimes they're selected because that was needed at that particular generation that particular time sometimes they're selected because he did one thing that you may have learnt something wrong from so he wants to correct your mistake Rabbi Akiva in Ethics of the Fathers you know what Rabbi Akiva says? he says laughter and frivolity will take you right out of this world Now, that's a weird thing. You know why? Because Rabbi Akiva, there are five times throughout the Talmud where Rabbi Akiva laughs when everyone else is crying. You've heard the famous stories? Rabbi Akiva, they see the foxes in the holy of holies. All the rabbis are are crying. What's Rabbi Akiva doing? He laughs. Rabbi Eliezer, his teacher, is suffering. Everyone else is crying. Rabbi Akiva is smiling. They hear the Romans celebrating their victory. Everyone starts crying. Rabbi Akiva starts laughing. There are at least five or six places where Rabbi Akiva laughed. Why did Rabbi Akiva laugh? Because he was able to see a little deeper and see that, that, that the destruction was a cause for redemption. He was able to see the good in everything and the uh, final goal. So therefore, because you might make a mistake of thinking that Rabbi Akiva said, look, don't take anything seriously. Laugh it all off. That's not what he was saying. So in Ethics of the Fathers, Rabbi Akiva comes along and tells us, hello. I'm not, I, that's not what you should say. So, when they said three things, it means these are selected statements. So, let's end with the statements. It says three things. matunim medim, be deliberate, slow in judgment. Ha midu tamidim have lots of students. Vasu siyag Torah, make a fence around the Torah. I would say, these are three areas of life. Thought, speech, action. Thought, speech, and action. Have a matunim medim, don't rush to judgment. Think. Most people don't think about what they're doing. Most people don't think about what they hear. Most people don't think. Right, Bertrand Russell, uh, George Bernard Shaw once said, he said, most people, he said, think maybe once or twice a year. He said, I have become famous because I think once or twice a week. Right? Unfortunately, uh, that's the way it is. So what it says, the first thing is, Mach Shabbat, think. Don't be quick to judge a person. Don't be quick to come to a conclusion in Jewish law. Don't be quick... To do anything, be deliberate, thought. Speech, have many students, meaning communicate Torah. You are, every Jew is obligated to be a teacher, right? To teach other people, to teach the world, to teach ourselves, teach each other through speech. When we speak to each other, when we communicate Torah to each other, we understand it that much better when I'm teaching someone else I have to learn it much better than if I'm just doing it myself I do it myself I say, oh yeah simple I understand that then I explain it to someone he says what does that mean I said oh good point right so I have to think, rethink it so when you so speech very important and the third area is asusiyag make a fence around the Torah meaning things which are precious to you Right? your actions should be very very careful make a fence around things because if it's precious to you you have to protect it so therefore I mean, don't have time to go through the whole thing otherwise I'll be here all night but those are the three statements thought Action, th- speech and action. Some would say, Matunim Bedin refers to the study of the study of Torah. Hamidu Talmidim Harbei means the teaching of Torah. Asusiy Torah means the fulfilment of Torah. So there is study, teaching, and fulfilment. Each one you have to do. Right? No one can get. So that's what they had to do. So that's what they had to say. Okay. We'll stop here. Maybe. Uh, at some time in future, we'll continue and perhaps even finish the first Mishnah. But at the moment, that's it for this evening. Thank you very much. You very much. So, one moment, please. Just, a, just a quick announcement, and then we'll...